winter. Winter has arrived. I've never enjoyed winter. It's my least favorite season. I know for some of you it's all about the gifts and the sweaters and the snowmen. Winter for me basically consists of toting my little space heater around the house. I, I catch a chill the first day of winter and it doesn't leave me until spring comes. My wife from, is from Canada and she's always like, why don't you put on more clothes? It's like you southerners don't know how to dress in the winter. Uh, this morning she said, did you wear a jacket? No, no, I didn't. Are you serious? I've got a space heater when I get home. <laughs> I don't need a jacket. My mom used to travel around the house with an electric blanket wrapped around her like a little snuggie. Orange drop cord being dragged through the house. So it's a miracle we survive. <laughs> My favorite season is summer. It can't be too hot for me. Sarah says I'm like a turtle. I need to bask. Uh, sometimes we will go over to people's houses in, in the church and we will eat dinner with you and my boys will be like, Dad, did you notice Mr. So-and-so didn't have a space heater blowing on his feet? And I'll say, well, that's because, that's because he's a weirdo, son. <laughs> Real men travel around with space heaters. <laughs> so, so there's physical seasons, and we like some and dislike others. But I want you to recognize that there are also seasons of life. I, I want us to look at seasons metaphorically. In your life, there are seasons like spring, summer, fall, winter. And there's been many books written on this. I think Swindoll, Blackaby, Graham, Chapman all wrote on this. But let, let's talk about the different seasons. First, springtime. Springtime, that's when life is busy. Sarah and I, we're in springtime right now. Building a church building, raising money, selling properties, four children, ten and under. We try to schedule time together because we're both super busy and we're like ships passing in the night. Springtime is when you have a busy season at work, a busy season with kids' sporting events, a busy home life, young children. Uh, these are good times, but you have to guard them. There is a barrenness in a busy life. A busyness is the number one destroyer of marriages. You don't have time to talk, you don't have time to eat. You don't have time for romance or time for anything. Busyness isn't bad. It's just busy. Now, I'm going to need some audience participation here. How many of you are in springtime right now? Life is just really busy. Would you raise your hand? Okay. That's springtime. Then there's summertime. That's when life is easy. Everything's going wonderfully well. It's gravy. Your life is like one long vacation. Health is good. Finances are good. Job is good. Marriage is good. Kids are alive. The, these seasons don't always last long, but we do have them. And it's really important that you store up during these seasons. You bank these times, like they did in Egypt. Prepare for winter. Do your regular maintenance. Read books. Take seminars. Send your roots down deep in the Lord. Be faithful to hear the preached word. Be faithful to be with God's people. Be faithful to dig deep in your personal Bible study. Summertime, that's when life is easy. Fall, that's when life changes. Now these could be positive changes or negative changes. If you're going to live 70 plus years, you will go through tremendous change. Moving to a new house, a new city, starting a new job, kids starting school, finding a new church, hiring new staff. Uh, maybe it's a new stage in life, getting married or becoming empty nesters. Don't fight change. Embrace it. 
determine, I'm not going to complain about this change. I'm going to thrive in it. I'm going to get out of this season what God intended. Walter Kaiser, one of my favorite theologians to read after, actually entitled his book on Ecclesiastes, Coping with Change. Springtime, that's when life is busy. Summertime, that's when life is easy. Fall, that's when life changes. Wintertime, that's when life falls apart. This is a season of loss. Some of you are in it. There's grief. A friend died. You're caring for sick parents. Some friend deserted you and you're lonely. This is a season with bankruptcy. Or cancer. Or mental illness. Or infertility. Your child goes to jail. You discover an affair. You lose your job. COVID-19 descends upon us. <laughs> it's been winter since the middle of March. It's rather easy to walk with God in the springtime, the summertime, and the fall time, but it's hard to walk with God in the winter. And some of you are facing the heaviness of life. Winter has arrived. Swindoll, Blackaby, Graham, and Chapman aren't the only ones who have written a book on how to deal with the seasons of life. There's another man, Solomon, who wrote an entire book on how to deal with the seasons of life. The book is called Ecclesiastes. In fact, you will see him go through all four seasons if you look at the book as a whole. Springtime, he experienced it. Remember all the cities he built in the last chapter? He experienced busyness. Uh, summertime, he's the richest man alive, the most powerful man alive. He's the most revered man on earth. Oh, he knew the easy life. Fall time, Solomon knew changes. He came to the throne in the middle of a family conflict. He went from being a citizen to being a king. He went from being single to being married, from being on a staff to leading a staff. He experienced fall. He dealt with life changing. Winter? You experience winter as well. And you say, but Kyle, you said winter is a season of loss. But Solomon has everything. He doesn't lose wars. He doesn't lose wives. He had a thousand of them. He doesn't lose a home. He doesn't lose anything. All he ever does is win, 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 no matter what. That's true. But he is going through a sort of loss. He's lost meaning in life. He's lost his drive to live. He's lost a purpose to exist. He's lost an eye to enjoy things. Even to enjoy seasons. The whole book of Ecclesiastes could be viewed as Solomon's journal through a cold and lonely winter. This is more than winter blues. This isn't sad seasonal affective disorder. If I were just reading this book like someone wrote me a letter, I would have to conclude whoever wrote this letter is nearly suicidal. If a TV reporter asked King Solomon, what's your favorite season? He would respond, I hate them all. Really? What about summer? Hate it. What about spring? Hate it. What about fall? Pumpkin, spice, nastiness. Hate it. <laughs> Part of your Christian maturity is learning to deal with the seasons of life in a gospel-centered way. Learning not to get too busy for God in the spring. Learning to stay humble in your successes in the summer. Learning to process change and see it from the hand of God in the fall. 
and learning to weather winter for the glory of God when it's cold. Here's what I have for you today. Three truths from the text, and then I'll close with three applications on how to make every season a gospel season. First, three truths from the text. And the first truth is this. Life has many seasons, but they all pass. Life has many seasons, but they all pass. Now, we're going to go through this poem verse by verse and then pull together some concluding thoughts when it finishes. Notice verse 1. For everything there is a season. Excuse me. I've got COVID. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just breathe, people. Just breathe. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. Have you ever thought about this? We, didn't, we did not decide to be born, let alone a time to be born. We didn't say, mm, any day but Monday. I just don't want to be born on a Monday. No, it's beyond our control. Now this, a time to be born and a time to die, represents a human life cycle. It forms a mirrorism, which is a, a linguistic phenomenon in which a combination of two contrasting parts make the whole. For example, when the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1, it means that God created everything in between the entire universe. If I said to you, I searched high and low, that means I searched everywhere. Flesh and bone, that refers to the whole body. This poem is full of mirrorisms. And there's something comprehensive about the entire list. We find the full range of human existence, birth to death. The full range of human emotion, weeping to laughter, mourning to dancing, love to hate. We find the full range of human activity, planting, gathering, breaking down, building up, embracing, not embracing, seeking, losing, casting away, uh, keeping, casting away, tearing, sowing, speaking, being silent. Life is a lyrical arrangement. Of good and bad. Verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. Now you must understand that this poem describes these activities. But it does not remark on them. It does not evaluate them as good or bad, wise or foolish. Solomon merely describes the seasons of life. And does not prescribe what we should do with them. He's simply reflecting on life as it is. That's life. Life contains all of this. Now, scholars try to weaken the word kill here. They say things like this. Like, this Hebrew word kill doesn't mean to murder. Hebrew has a unique word as seen in the Ten Commandments for murder, and it's not this word, which is true. Uh, This could refer to appropriate forms like self-defense, just war, or capital punishment. And then they say, remember this is prescriptive, not descriptive. Your takeaway should not be it's a season to kill someone. How many of you have ever felt like you've been in that season? Like, I'm going to say, I just want to kill someone. I just want to kill, yeah. Uh, How many of you is the person beside you? No, I'm just kidding. Don't say that. Look, I I don't have to unpack all of that. Although I just did. But the, the poem is simply showing you that these things happen in life. I don't think you have to get into the word kill and all of that. It's simply showing you that these things happen in life. Verse 4, 
a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. If you're a Baptist, you don't like that last word right there, right? No, notice the human emotions. The first set is private, weep and laugh. Then the second set is public, mourn and dance. David danced before the Lord in great joy. And he also mourned at his son's sickness. This poem is simply revealing the rhythms of life. Verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Now this is interesting. This is the middle line. This is the only line in the poem with an object. Previously, it's like plant this, pluck up that. Plant what? Pluck up what? We're left to wonder. But not here. This is the only line in the poem with an object. Cast away stones. Gather stones. So we're left with the question, what are stones? Well, there are three options. It could refer to a time of war where you would throw stones on the fields of your enemies. Secondly, it could refer to a time to release wealth, to give. You could read it as um, precious stones. Thirdly, modern interpreters understand this as a phrase for sexual intercourse. Stones being a metaphor for semen. Actually, Eugene Peterson translated it this way, a right time to make love and another to abstain. And they get this, it sounds creative, I know some of you are like, hmm, that's good. I don't believe it. Uh, they, they get this from a ridiculous historical midrash. It took me a while to like, where all these commentators get it. They get this from a ridic ridiculous historical midrash. None of the other items on the list seem figurative, so we should stick with the literal. I'm convinced it's option one. We read in 2 Kings that Israel is in war with Moab and they are instructed, every good piece of land you shall ruin with stones. And then Israel complied on every good piece of land, everyone threw a stone until it was covered. And as a result, the Moabites could neither sow their field nor reap a harvest. In peacetime, the rocks had to be cleared from the field before cultivation. On the hillsides, these stones were usually arranged in terraces to prevent erosion and catch the rain to funnel it to the dry soil. In Isaiah's song of the vineyard in chapter 5, they used the stones to build a watchtower and a wine press. Verse 5, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. These are times to say hello, and then there are times to say goodbye. Goodbye to a friend who is moving away. Goodbye to a spouse going off to war. There are times to embrace, times to refrain from embracing. Verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose. Now the word seek here carries the idea of gaining. There's a time to gain and a time to lose. <laughs> One of my um, pastors that influences me, Stephen Davey, he, he's, he says it sounds like his dieting plan, especially Thanksgiving. There's a time to gain, he says amen to that, and a time to lose, and he says I don't really like that. He continues, a time to keep and a time to cast away. How many of you know a hoarder? They just hoard a lot of things. Would you point at them? Would you point at <laughs> Hoarders, listen to this verse. There are times to throw things away. Have a garage sale. Uh, on the ship, when Jonah was sleeping, the men were casting things overboard. They were casting it away. It was a time to cast away. There are times to sell off certain stocks and times to keep others. There are seasons to keep the house. And then there are other seasons for older couples to cast away all the bedrooms and downsize. 
Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow. When Jacob thought a beast killed his son Joseph, he tore his clothes. It was a sign of mourning. But when the crying and mourning ended, he sewed them back up. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. This is good advice in our culture. There's a right time to shut up. And there's another right time to speak up. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Our world is a mixture of battlefields and peace treaties. And it's not going to change until Jesus creates a new earth and a new heaven where he, the Prince of Peace, will reign forever. Now, this poem may be the best known portion in Ecclesiastes. But it's the least understood. A folk singer, Pete Seeger, wrote a song that was later made famous by the birds in the 1960s called Turn, Turn, Turn. I'd never heard about it until uh, someone in our church said, hey, you're getting close to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Look up the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. How many of you have ever heard of this? Wow. I feel, <laughs> I feel very uneducated at the moment. Well, the birds changed the melody slightly from Seeger. goes like this. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. All but six words from the song come straight from the biblical poem, which is why Pete Seeger sent a portion of his royalties to Israel. Evidently, he acknowledged that it was Israel's former king, Solomon, who wrote the original lyrics. When Alistair Begg talked about this connection, he concluded, you have to say that God wrote a pop song. It did climb the charts. Now, I feel like I should reveal something to you. I've really struggled with this passage. Last week, my wife asked, how's the sermon prep going? <laughs> I said, I've read about 15 to 20 scholars and spent about 25 hours in the text, and I have no idea what the text is about. <laughs> She's like, I don't think I've ever heard you say that before. That can't be a good thing. It's Thursday night. You're preaching on Sunday. Where there are two reasons this poem is challenging for me. First, it's artistic. I'm not artistic. I'm like a negative five on the artistic scale. And these artistic areas of the Bible always challenge me. I'm reading it going, what exactly are you saying, Solomon? Just come out and say it. Stop with all the flowery language. But I did discover something interesting. There's a, a literary artistry here. This is a perfect poem. There are 14 pairs in the poem. It's perfect twice. The biblical number for perfection and completion in the Bible is seven. Think the seven days of creation. Seven is found all throughout the books of Daniel and Revelation. Two sets of perfect pairs totaling 14. Solomon writes the word time 28 times. Four times the biblical number of perfection. It's a, it's a perfect poem. However, at the center of all of that perfection, there is a hint of imperfection. There's a line that talks about stones. Uh, the Hebrew word stone is, is the Hebrew word heaven, which is very close to the most popular word in the book, vanity, which comes to us in the Hebrew form, havel. Stone, heaven, 
vanity, havel. What is Solomon doing? He put a pun at the center. Why pun on the main word of the book? Why pawn a perfect poem at the center with something that is so very imperfect? Vanity. There are 14 pluses in the poem. Positives. Born, plant, build. And 14 minuses. Negatives. Die, pluck up, break down. 14 pluses, 14 minuses. Each cancels the other out. It adds up to zero. Nothing but Havel. Nothing but emptiness. Nothing but vanity. Now the second reason this poem is really challenging for me is that it's debated. Scholars are split on if these words have a negative connotation or a positive connotation. Was Solomon smiling while writing it? Or was he in despair while writing it? Now if it's positive, if you're supposed to understand this poem as positive, then Solomon is playing a depressed, fatalistic person in the first two chapters and then kind of steps out of his character in the poem and asks the readers, now what do we learn from all of that? Chapter 3 would be a turning point in the book. That's if the poem is meant to be read as positive. If you're supposed to have, if it's supposed to be read as negative, you, you know, those are the lens at which you view the passage, then when Solomon is, is continuing with the poem and his just depressing, fatalistic outlook on life. And you say, Kyle, well, which, which one is right? Well, there's a lot of scholars that divide on this. Um, Danny Aiken, the president of the seminary where I graduated from, he thinks it's negative. Gibson thinks it's negative. Kidner thinks it's negative. Uh, Tremper Longman, Sidney Gradanus, Hubbard, Tim Keller, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, Stephen Davey, they all say you need to read it through the lens that it's negative. But some say positive. Eaton, Walter Kaiser, Philip Graham Ryken, Reader, Ligon Duncan, they say no, 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 it's not negative, it's positive. And I know that this poem is often read in a positive way in funerals, but I think it's read out of context. You hear verses 1 through 8 read, but after the poem, what does Solomon say in verse 9? He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? They never read verse 9 in funerals. They always stop short. As pretty as the poem sounds, it's not meant to be pretty. It's meant to convey that he's in winter. Where is history going? Solomon says, nowhere. It's an endless cycle. Remember Solomon's beautiful poem in chapter 1 about everything under heaven? The sun, the wind, the streams. What did he say after it? All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 3.9 restates Ecclesiastes 1.13 and thus gives a negative evaluation of the poem. Seeger and the birds, I hate to tell you this, they had a positive view on the poem, but they missed it. Solomon is completely pessimistic. He's trapped in a tyranny of time. He possesses a fatalistic outlook on life. A time for this and a time for that, but no matter what time it is, you can't change a thing about it. So why toil? He's imprisoned within a sequence of seasons. Now that's my take on it. I may be wrong. I'm not, but there's a possibility. <laughs> e either way, whether it's negative or positive, I'm giving you transcending truths from the passage that are true in every season of life. First, life has many seasons, but they all pass. Secondly, for every season, there is a God. Let's read verse 1 and then verse 10. 
So we're basically just going to bypass the poem. But these two verses give the context to the poem. Verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. <clears throat> By the way, the word time here is not chronos. It's, it's not speaking of keeping time. It's referring to seasons. You substitute the word time throughout the chapter with season. And you, you do no harm to the text. Verse 10. I have seen the business. That is also a word that could be translated seasons. I have seen the seasons that God... Who gave it to you? I have seen the seasons that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Apparently, according to verse 10, God gives the seasons. This is the first mention of God in the chapter. I take verse 10 to be the first positive verse in Ecclesiastes. Now, did you notice how the poem never mentioned anything... Above heaven, like God. It's just an earthly poem. It also never mentions anything beyond the grave. Solomon has been looking at the seasons of life without giving thought to God, without giving thought to anything above heaven. And that's why he's so frustrated. Life apart from God is frustrating and meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. It's havel. Now that changes in verse 10. He's viewing the seasons of life now in light of God. Verse 1, for everything there is a season. Then verse 10 flips it, for every season there is a God. D don't spend your time, church, trying to change your season. Carrying around your little space heater, grumbling about how cold it is. Recognize that every season, that in every season, God is still God. In the diaper season. In the menopause season. In the aging season. You're going to age. Things will drop. Wrinkles will appear. Joanne Collins said that the problem with beauty is that it's like being born rich. And then becoming poor. When you're in the springtime and life is really busy. Remember, there is a God. When you're in the summertime and life is really easy. Remember, there is a God. When you're in the fall time and life is changing quickly, remember, there is a God. By the way, there is a reason that flowers die in the winter and come back to life in the spring. It's an encore of Jesus' resurrection. Even the physical seasons are meant to remind you that God is God. There are many seasons, but they all pass. In every season, there is a God. Thirdly, God uses every season to bring beauty. Every season. Verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now some of you are thinking, God can't make my season beautiful. How can he make this false accusation, this marital heartbreak, this loneliness, this financial struggle, how can he make this season beautiful? Well, you're only seeing it from a human perspective. You may need time and distance before you can truly understand. He has a complete view. We have a limited view. God mixes the good and the bad, the joys and the pains together to make something beautiful. Think of the previous poem as a list of ingredients that God mixes together to serve His purposes in your life. Life is filled with burden. But also beauty. He says in verse 11, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
Some of you have no ability to see or comprehend how this season in your life can be beautiful. And I'm with you. Because I can list two, three, maybe even four things right now where I have no clue how they could possibly ever be beautiful. And God's going, you're too close. You can't step back and see far enough. Trust the fact that even what is tearful and hard is part of my love for you. Some of you aren't Christians. For those of you who aren't Christians, the middle of verse 11 should hit you hard. God has put eternity into man's heart. <laughs> you, you know why you, like Solomon, can't go through seasons of life like there is no God? I mean, you may write a poem like verses 1 through 9, but eventually you have to arrive at verse 10. Why is that? Because God has put eternity in your hearts. Uh, the Canadian missionary... My wife's from Canada, so I try to quote Canadian people because it gives me points, you know. And marriage is all about a point system. Uh, I'll give you a chapter and verse later on the point system. But a Canadian missionary, Don Richardson, has traveled all over the world to demonstrate that people from every culture have a deep longing for God, no matter in what season of life they're in. He actually went to work with this Sawi tribe of, of Dutch New Guinea. To do some missionary work. And he met a headhunting tribe. Who had a sacred ritual for reconciling conflict with another tribe. When they were in times of war. Seasons of war. The chief's own son would be offered to the other child. To the other tribe as a peace child. Now, now these are headhunters. They've never heard the name Jesus. They've never read a Bible. They don't know anything. They don't know civilization. They've never taken a bath. But they've developed this. What, why have they developed this? Because God has put eternity into your heart. Richardson saw this ritual as a parable of the gospel in which the chief of all chieftains made peace with the lost tribe of humanity by offering up his only son, Jesus Christ. Richardson goes on to give other examples. He discovered other tribes like the Dyaks of Borneo. Who, who one day a year put their sins on a little boat and sell it down the river. Scapegoat, so to speak. No education. Why have they developed this ritual? God has put eternity into our hearts. In every season of life, your soul screams out, I need Jesus. Why? Because eternity is written on your hearts. You're born with a longing for another world. A life beyond these mere seasons. Dear non-Christian, listen to the birds and turn, turn, turn. Turn and repent of your sins and run to this peace child, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. God's gift to man. Friends, enjoy each season. Each season of life as God's gift to you. For he reigns over each with fatherly sovereignty. Now that's the three truths. 
Now I want to give you three applications about how to make every season a gospel season. Exposition finished. Let's hit some application here. How to make every season a gospel season. Application number one. Jesus can make any season sweet. Even winter. Winter has arrived for some of you in more ways than one. What if I told you you didn't have to waste your winter? What if you went through your winter praying something like this? God, I want more out of my winter than I've ever gained before. I want to walk through it trusting you very intentionally for why you're allowing it. I want to see your refining work burning the dregs off my soul. Now that prayer isn't going to all of a sudden make you love winter. I'm not saying you'll be a master of weathering winter after praying it. But at the end of the season, you need to know. Christ is your reward. I hope Ecclesiastes 3 will be a warm blanket for your soul. Your winter may be rough. But never forget that Jesus endured the ultimate winter on your behalf. He faced the bitter cold of sinful humanity. And died the ultimate death of winter. And he did so, so that you will never have to face the only winter that could actually freeze you. The only winter that could actually destroy you. The winter of God's wrath. This is the work of Christ on the cross. Application number two. You must experience every season to bear gospel fruit. You must experience every season to bear gospel fruit. Sarah and I have talked about one day retiring in Florida. We've always liked to talk to Florida residents. They all say the same thing. I like Florida, but I miss the seasons. They say it's always summer. And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> Sounds like the most wonderful place on earth. And it's always really interesting to hear them say, I need winter. You need winter? <laughs> That's why you moved to Florida, so you wouldn't have winters anymore. True. But I realized that I need them. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, recorded these words, and I quote, It is said that in some countries, trees will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. End quote. Apparently the trees need winter to bear fruit. Richard Sibbs, the 15th century Puritan, he wrote an excellent book, The Bruise Read, if you're looking for a good read this week. The Bruise Read, if you're looking for a good read this week. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm signing autographs later, but uh, not right now, people, please. All right, this is, this is, let's get back, let's get back. We got off. Richard Sibbs, this is what he said. He said, the winter prepares the earth for the spring. So do sanctified afflictions prepare the soul for glory. 
The winter prepares the earth for spring. So do sanctified afflictions prepare the soul for glory. I know you don't like this winter. But you need this winter. Because it's forcing you to bear gospel fruit. The last application is this. We know there are seasons under heaven. The question is, will there be seasons in heaven? We know there are seasons under heaven. Language from verse 1. The question is, will there be seasons in heaven? The answer, no and maybe. I began this exposition talking about physical seasons and metaphorical seasons. Uh, metaphorically, you will no longer experience the ups and downs of different seasons. That's simply a battle that you face under heaven, but it does not exist in heaven. No more loneliness, no more death, no more heartbreak, no more sin, no more winter. Now that's metaphorically. What about physically? Forty minutes ago when I said, I don't like winter, I watched some of your faces and you cringed. That's your favorite season. You love winter. It's just something enchanting about making snow angels and sitting by a crackling fire and drinking hot cocoa and the smell of pine trees and viewing holiday lights. What is, what is heaven's weather like? Will there be seasons? Will there be snow? Will there be winter? Randy Alcorn, who writes on heaven a lot, uh, caught my attention this week when he said, he said, is rain a bad thing? No, it's good. We'll see trees bearing fruit on the new earth. Will they be rained on? Presumably. Will rain turn to snow in higher elevations? Why not? If there's snow, will people play in it and throw snowballs and sled down hillsides? Of course. Just as resurrected people will still have eyes, ears, and feet, a resurrected earth will have rain, snow, and wind. Now, some people argue that because fall and winter are about dying, they argue that we won't experience those two seasons in heaven. But, but I'm not convinced that seasons and their distinctive beauties are the result of the fall. I think there's winter in heaven. True winter. Perfect winter. The winter that Jesus purchased for us on Calvary. And I'm expecting to see some snow. Because it's an eternal reminder. Though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be whiter than snow. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.